Here we are now, with another episode of the Andrew Lake Podcast. If you are a regular listener of the Andrew Lake Podcast, please share your favourite episode, as this will help me find my audience. It will help to find the people who are ready to hear what we are talking about here. And today, I'd like to talk about motivation. I'd like us to get to the real core of motivation, the essence of motivation, the source of all motivation, if we could. And to do this, we need to look at conditioning. We need to look at how we are composed because of the places we've been, the person we have been, and the things we have done and had done to us. And I hope that if we discuss this clearly enough, and you can follow along in these ideas and conversations as we have them, you can really come to a deep understanding of all motivation you'll be able to see for yourself how to get back to your own motivation. And we can argue and we can discuss also whether motivation is a good thing. And I'd like to say yes, in its pure form it is a good thing. And yet there are also many impure forms of it and there are also many traps for it and misunderstandings around it. So that's what we're going to untangle. So imagine, if you would, a baby. A baby is born, and of course, before the baby is born, the baby is inside the mother and goes everywhere the mother does. And then after the baby is born, the baby is completely dependent and can't go anywhere, can't move around at all, unless someone moves it around. Someone picks you up and puts you somewhere else. You can't really do anything. And then you learn to roll over, you learn to crawl, and you learn to walk, and you can move around a bit more. You have more independence in the physical world, navigating the gross world. Now, in my culture, and I believe in many cultures, there is this thing that happens in families, and I'm sure it's quite common for just about every culture around the world. And it is going for a walk. Going for a family walk. And you can see people doing this in families with their children. Now, here, something very interesting happens. And here, some very fundamental conditioning occurs. If you ever get the chance to watch from a distance what's actually happening when a family is going for a walk, take that chance. Because by watching, you can see conditioning occurring in real time and you can see how it has led to the motivation in you as an adult. So what's happening? Depending on the age of the children... What's happening is, well, at a certain age, the child is in the pram. 
child is being carried or the child is in the pram and they have no choice but to go along with it. But then when the child is a little bit older, they can walk. They can walk for themselves and they can hold hands with daddy, hold hands with mummy. And then a little bit older, they might be able to get a scooter or a little bicycle or something to ride on or a skateboard, something like this. Now, what happens is the family needs to stay together. They need to be walking together to some degree. And the parents are always watching out to see if the child's going to run off and get into trouble or get into danger or something like this. So they'll be walking and then the child will separate from the parent and then something will occur. Now, it might be that the parent... Most of the time they say, now, where are you? And they say, come along, let's keep going. Now, as the child develops, the child experiments with that boundary. And it will come to the realization that, oh, the parent is going to watch out for me. And at times you can see children actually testing this because they'll stop and they'll wait and the parents will keep walking, and they'll wait and see, is, is the parent going to turn around? Are they actually going to come after me? Are they going to notice that I've, that I've not followed along? And then the parent will turn around and say, oh, no, come on, let's go. And there are varying degrees of this. There are whole different things that ch- the child can, pl- can play. The child can then refuse to go along and see what happens. The child can also run ahead and see what happens. See how far ahead can you go. And as the child gets older, well, there is a certain longer stretch. There's a longer distance. And the children can ride their bikes all the way up ahead, out of sight. And then they wait for the parents to catch up. That's another version of what's going on here. Now, what's happening is this conditioning of boundary movement and boundary crossing. And this happens throughout all childhood in many ways. And it's not just on the family walk. It's also with the child learning to walk and then going to certain things on the shelf and pulling books off the shelves. And mummy says, no, don't do that. Or the child wants to run around and jump on furniture. And the, and the parent says, no, don't do that. Behave yourself. Do this, do that. Or it's not just restricting, but also enforcing things. Make sure you do this. Make sure you eat your dinner. Make sure you do your homework. Can you do this for me? Can you clean this for me? And this is just the back and forth conditioning of what a child can and can't do within their boundaries. And it's a complicated process. It's a complex world. And every child has a different amount of ability to cross boundaries and to go into different things and try different things and different levels of defiance and conformity. So we're all different, but it does end up spilling over into our adult lives. It ends up allowing us to be victims of the boundaries that we find in adult life and our experiences of testing boundaries as a child are essentially the same as what we experience as adults. So, for example, if you felt 
your parents were restrictive and you thought, oh, I just want to run away or ride ahead or go out and explore something and my parents were always telling me, no, stay here, don't do that, then as an adult, you're going to be going out and doing rebellious things. You're going to be trying to overcompensate for having a lack in your childhood of freedom. Now that's one side of motivation. That's one side of the conditioning of motivation, which is boundary testing and boundary conditioning. Now the other side is that the child does things for the parents' love. They do things for their attention. And they will be doing behaviors which prove to them that, or the child is trying to prove to themselves that mummy and daddy do know that I exist and they do care about me. And that's essentially what's happening when the child is refusing to go along with the family walk. Because the child stops, the parents walk ahead, and then the parent comes back and says, no, come on, let's go. I haven't forgotten you. And by that way, the child realizes, ah, you do love me. I do have attention for, you do have attention for me. And the child is always wanting love. We all need love. We all need care. And we all need validation. We all need validation that we exist. We need a dignity to our being. And at first, the child gets this first and foremost from their parents. And as the child gets a little bit older, they get it from other adults, teachers, family, friends, and so on. And then a little bit older from their friends, from their social circle. And this widening circle of where you get your love from expands bigger and bigger and bigger as you go further and further towards adulthood and towards maturity. And it can go all the way up to from the parents to the school to the institutions to the society to the country all the way out to God. And that really is something. Because God is almost like the... Think of what God is in most religions. In most religions you say, God is all loving. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Now, isn't that a great deal? Isn't that a perfect solution to this problem of needing love? Because, of course, God, the concept of God, is quite malleable. The concept of God is quite hard to really pin down, which means he can quite easily serve the role of ever-present love in someone's life. And if you're conditioning children with the concept of God, well, that is very powerful. That is a very deep-rooted conditioning that goes right into the very core of the child. And that stays with the child right up until adulthood. 
And it's no wonder that people who are raised as Christians and Muslims and Jews stay with that religion. They keep their childhood beliefs. So we always are looking for attention. And we're always looking for love. And if we can't get it from our family, we'll get it from our society. We'll get it from success. And if we can't get it from success, we'll get it from a higher power. We'll get it from God. And where we fall on that spectrum is different as as many different people as there are in this world. We're all drawn to different ways of this solution to needing attention, needing love. So that would be the second side of motivation. Now, the other side of motivation, which comes from conditioning as well, is familiarity. Now, it's funny in English that we have this word family, and then we also have this word familiarity. And familiarity, well, I guess those two words, they have the same their etymology is the same source of something, wherever it came came from. But really, in English, we mean, when we say familiarity, we mean similar, or it is known to us. So, what you have happened to you in your childhood becomes more and more familiar to you as it's repeated. So if you are testing boundaries by not walking along with mummy and daddy, letting them walk ahead, and then they say, oh, we've forgotten little Doster. We need to come back and get him. Come on, little Doster. And then he says, no, I don't want to go. And he throws a little tantrum. And that gives the child even more attention. You you can see how much attention a child gets from a from a tantrum, well, that's just reinforcing the tantrum. And it might be negative. It might be that the parents are saying, oh, you have, go and have a hissy fit. Oh, you're having such a tantrum. Oh, you're being such a baby. That's still attention. And in a strange, twisted sort of way, it's still love because it still validates the child. But if you're having these things happen over and over again, then they become familiar to you. They are something that you are comfortable with and you can actually become comfortable with misery. You can be comfortable with feeling bad about yourself and you can actually become validated through attention with love for being miserable, for being upset, for being sad. And this is so twisted. This is so messed up. When you really realize the significance of this and the depth of this, it really goes to show just what it's like to feel without any sort of understanding of why it is you're doing the certain things that you're doing. Now, that's a little bit about childhood. Now we can speak more broadly about motivation with these things in mind. 
Because as adults, what happens is we carry this conditioning with us into the world and then we interact in the world. We interact in our society, in our culture, and it reflects off the things that we're carrying within us. And society will tell you things. People will tell you things. They will say things. They will reinforce things. They will reward things, just as the parents do. And it goes on and on. Society will be telling you, this is a good thing, or this is a bad thing. And you'll have your response to it. You'll say, no, that's not a bad thing. No, that's not a good thing. Or you say, yes, oh, that is a good thing. Oh, I need to get it. I feel really motivated to get it. Yes, that is a good thing. If only I could get that. This is my top priority now. Have you ever had that sense of motivation of, yes, this is a very good thing. I need to go after it. And this happens in so many subtle ways. Because every time you listen to someone talk, every time you are even near someone, their values and beliefs are being projected onto you. They're being thrown onto you. They will say how things are according to them. They will in subtle ways be saying what's important and what you should do. And it's not like they're trying to overpower you or condition you or make you into something consciously. No, this happens all unconsciously. People tell you what they think you should be so that it will make them feel comfortable within their conditioning. And the more out of the box you are, the more stressed a person is going to be to see you and be with you and see how different you are. And that means they're going to push even harder in putting their ideas and beliefs and values onto you. And it's very rare to meet someone who actually accepts someone for who they are. So punishment and reward and childhood conditioning and the culture that we're in leads to a kind of false motivation. And this motivation is running around with ideas in your head without really listening to the root of your motivation, the cause of your motivation. And this is something very different. This is something very different to the personal development, self-help gurus that are all talking about motivation. Essentially, what they're talking about is punishment and reward. And they're saying, find something that's really important to you and then work really hard to get it. Find a vision for what's really deep and then become really, really motivated Find something that's really good. Be really clear about your values. These sorts of things. Believe in yourself. And this is all an unsustainable falsehood. It's not the source of motivation. It's not the ground of motivation. And really, believing in yourself, believe in yourself, that's a, that's a falsehood. What do we say about belief? What do the new atheists say about belief? 
Belief from the atheist paradigm is worthless. You don't need belief. And there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of value in that. And there are also problems with the atheist paradigm, and there are limits to it. But one of the good things about it is assessing what it means to believe something. And then you go across to the self-help paradigm, and they say, believe in yourself. Well, what does that mean? That doesn't make any sense at all. Now, another way this falsehood comes up is through strong asserting. Now, someone who asserts themselves asserts themselves very strongly is not someone who's motivated. It's not necessarily someone who's strong and clear in their source. People who motivate themselves are actually people who are trying to strengthen a belief. They're actually trying to strengthen a value. And that can actually show the weakness of a value. It, actually, it can actually show how much they don't think it is a strong value. Which is, psychologically speaking, essentially where you're walking around saying, oh, this is really important. This is really good. This is really important. But you haven't really convinced yourself. And the whole reason you're actually going around and asserting it is because you don't believe in it, because you can't confront the fact that if it were true, which it isn't, well, it really wouldn't work for you anyway. And there are also consequences for it not working for you. So that's a real tangle to be in. That's a real hard one to get over. And that's a real side of motivation that a lot of people don't understand. Which is that you say, well, why aren't I motivated? I know this is good for me. I know this is something very important. But I'm just not motivated to do it. And the answer is, well, actually, you don't have motivation because it's not important to you. It's not true for you. There's something clashing about it. And you're trying to hide that from yourself because when you realize that, you'll realize you need to change direction. You'll realize that you've wasted time. You'll realize that you need to reassess what's true for you. So how do we get out of this? What is the source of motivation? And essentially, the trick is to undo your conditioning. You need to let go of all the things that you've been told. You need to go back to your childhood and work out all those things that you rebelled against or you were drawn towards. You also need to stop listening to the people in your life. You need to stop listening to people who are telling you what to do. And you need to learn how to hear them and still connect with them and yet understand that they are in subtle ways conditioning you still and triggering your conditioning. And the root cause 
of a pure motivation is actually something inside you which is more like a kind of spiritual intuition. And the thing to be understood about this is that there is a force at work that wants to be productive. There's a force at work that wants to flower. There's a force that wants to have its energy come through and manifest itself in the world. And this is the true meaning of having your spiritual essence come forward. It's the true meaning of having your intuition lead you and guide you through life. And it takes practice to get in touch with that. It takes time to remember that. It's a process to remember that. It's a process to cultivate that. And of course, we do that through meditation. But it still takes time. Because when you sit down to meditate, what happens is all the voices are telling you what to do. All the impulses are coming up. All the conditioning is coming up. And you're clinging to it. You're saying, yes, this is what I want. Yes, this is what I want. Yes, this is what I was after. Yes, this is truly what my desire is. And it's coming up again and again, and then you're going out and you're acting on it. But really, this is actually just a burning off. It's a burning off of the layers. And the deeper you go, the more core you find. The more you return to source. And there are many processes that can help with this. There are processes that can speed up the burning off process. And there are processes that are designed to specifically point out spiritual intuition. But the first step is to simply stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop listening to your culture. Stop listening to your family. Stop listening to your friends. Stop listening to people talk. Stop listening to the voice in your head. Stop telling yourself what you think you want. Stop telling yourself what you think you should be doing. And just take time to step back and really assess what is going on, how things are working. And if you can do that, you really start to start you really start to unwire your your inner world. And you're really starting to see the workings of your being. And a deeper skill than just feeling motivated like Oh, I feel like jumping out of bed. Like, oh, I feel motivated today. Oh, I want to do lots of work today. Oh, it's a feeling. I'm excited. I've got a spring in my step. Is knowing the mechanics of all that. 
So a deeper thing than ABC motivation is understanding the mechanics of motivation. A deeper thing than the cheap feeling that motivational speakers are selling to you is self-knowledge. And that's an experiential thing. That is actually being able to see inside your head where your thoughts are coming from. It's being able to see a family walking down the street and watching them interact and realizing, ah, that's exactly what happened to me. That's exactly what I'm doing. That's exactly what I'm trying to do with my life. So that's the cause, the root cause of motivation. It's spiritual intuition. And so many people will spend the rest of their lives chasing their tails. So many people will live out Their idea of motivation working and working and working by beating themselves up because of a conditioning that they never faced. And I wish more people would come out of that cycle. And it doesn't mean that when you tap into spiritual intuition that you're not productive It doesn't mean that you're now a sloth. It doesn't mean that you're lazy. No, on the contrary. You actually become very productive in a very different way. And the feeling of work, the feeling of productivity is very different. And how you go about doing the things that you're doing and the outcome and the reward that that gives you and the Fulfillment that you get from that is very different. And yet there has to be something completely separate to your work, which is set at understanding your own wiring. This needs to be something completely separate. It needs to be a specific process. It needs to be a specific time of day where you say, okay, I'm going to sit down And actually look at, well, what's motivation? What is motivation? What is motivating me? And that's an inquiry. That's a contemplation inquiry that you can go into, that you can use as a doorway into understanding these things. And really, if it's answered sincerely, if it's a question that's asked in a sincere way, it's a very profound question. What is motivating you? What's your motivation? And I feel that I recoil when I (laughs) hear that question because what comes up for me is all the self-help, personal development bullshit. It's all the, oh, I want a really good life. I I want to make more money. I really want to make this product. Oh, I want to help people. Oh, I want to connect deeply with other people. And maybe some of these are good things. Maybe they are. But from the self-help paradigm and the success rationalist paradigm, there's something that doesn't sit quite right 
There's something that's not quite there's there's not quite the juice in it that I'm after. I mean, I don't know about you, but I really want the I want the deepest juice. Like we could say, do, do you want to feel motivated all the time? And if you'd ask me that, I'd say, well, what does that feeling feel like? Is that the feeling of beating myself up and working really hard because I want to be successful, because I feel inadequate, because I have all this childhood conditioning that I haven't looked at, which I'm unconsciously running out? Now, if that's your answer, I'd say no. No, I don't want to be motivated all the time. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. But if we say, okay, well, let's take a deeper look at motivation. And we say, well, what would a better vision of motivation be? And that would be understanding your own pitfalls, understanding your conditioning, being able to recognize your own laziness, being able to recognize when you're being influenced by the outside world, being able to understand when you're being influenced by your culture, your society, your friends, your family, the people in your life. Understanding when you've turned away from your spiritual intuition And also not beating yourself up when you realize that moment. Oh, that's a a big one. That's one that you'll have to contend with if you you go down this path. Because this is a a big one. Pay pay attention to this one. So you've you've got this higher version of motivation. And what you do is you start meditating and you start doing self-inquiry and you start building your self-knowledge and what will happen is you'll start to get more of a you'll get start to get more in touch with your spiritual intuition now that will be a beautiful thing but then you'll turn away then you'll be unmotivated and you'll you'll beat yourself up even more for being unmotivated because being motivated becomes even more of a powerful thing And it takes a great maturity to be able to realize that and what is going on there and not beat yourself up and still get back to your spiritual intuition. And if I have to choose between, you know, these understanding these dynamics and navigating these dynamics and the former definition of motivation, of course I choose the latter. Of course. Of course I choose a better relationship with motivation. And another component of that would be fulfillment. A sense of not wasting my time. Having the sense that I've poured my energy into something that is going to be of use to someone. And when I say, oh, I've poured my energy into something that's of use to someone, that's just a way of talking. It's just a way of narrowing down a flowering of the force that's within you and its manifestations in the world. We can never know 
We can never know how the force will come through and manifest in the world. The trick is just to be in touch with it. The trick is just to be in alignment with it. And we have to use these spiritual terms. We have to use these fluffy terms like force and intuition and alignment because they're the only words we've got for such things. Really, there should be a new language for them. And so much of what I talk about requires words that we don't have, words that don't exist, at least yet. So that's a little bit about motivation. I hope you've been able to follow along and hear the message that I've got. And I'm very fortunate to have been able to have some encounters with a deeper motivation. And of course, I do fall off. (laughs) I do have lots of pitfalls and lots of conditioning to undo. And lots of things wrong with me as well, of course. We're in this together. But I've come far enough to be able to explain it clearly and to feel very strongly about it. I hope you can feel how strongly I feel about this. And, of course, the other side is, well, Dosta, are you just asserting yourself? (laughs) Because you really don't believe what you're saying? (laughs) That's a good one. I like that one. Use the, what is it? Doctor's, doctor tastes his own medicine? (laughs) Well, yes, of course, there's that as well. There are all sorts of backs and forths. And essentially... After a while, these backs and forths and these things become a a game. And the whole theory of motivation, well, it actually turns into a game. It becomes a playfulness. And that is a very high level of motivation. And of course, where does that come from? Right back at childhood. Right back at childhood. Think about when you were playing as a child. That's when your parents weren't around. That's when you were most creative because you didn't have someone standing over you. You were purely intrinsic. And in that moment, the force was coming through you and there was an incredible creativity. And you can see this in children. Parents see this in children all the time. Think of the classic tea party. Now, at a certain age, a child, usually the girl, has a tea party. And they'll set up a table. They'll set up her, she'll set up her dolls. She'll sit around. And then she'll move them. They'll be talking. And they'll be actually having a conversation. And she'll do, okay, so this one's talking. And then, oh, this one responds. And then this one stands up on the table and says, oh, what are you doing? And then sits back down and then says, oh, sorry. And then this. And there's this whole world. There's this story and character and interactions and things. You think, where does she get this from? And you think, of course, well, she gets it from listening to the adults sitting around having tea parties. But it's also incredibly creative. And it's incredibly original. 
And children are full of ideas. Children are full of ideas that would never have occurred to us. And it's such a shame that it's crushed. Such a shame that it's beaten out of them. And in some ways, well, it is needed because the... Well, think of the child walking with the parents... The parents actually does the parent actually does need to make sure that the child doesn't go out into the road and get hit by a car or something. So there is a real danger out there. And that's probably I guess the the pain and the art and the fulfillment and the joy and the frustration of being a parent. Is that you love this thing and you want it to be free, but you also want it to be safe. And I have no idea what that's like. I'm not a parent, so I probably shouldn't say too much about that. But back to the point is playfulness. If we can say that something is the... If we, if we could set something as the highest form of motivation with the deepest source and the most pure spiritual intuition, we would say that it's playfulness. Because playfulness would allow the force of reality to come through us and flower in the world in its most beautiful form. And that's all I have to say for now.